0: to affect autism where affect is the number one tool we use in supporting child development through playful interactions get 15% off any dir 101 course and introduction to dir and dir floor time through icdl.com by using the promo code affect a 15 that's a f f e c t a 1 5 Welcome back, listeners. I'm Daria Brown, and I am excited this week to have Eric Gall, who is the creator of Empowering Ability, a website that offers online courses and training to support our loved ones with developmental disabilities to be valued citizens and create their own awesome, ordinary life. He is located right near me, just outside Toronto. His experience with his own family sparked his desire to bring this to the masses. I'm so excited to meet you and have you on the podcast. Welcome, Eric.
1: Hey, Daria. Thanks so much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: I will say to listeners that this is branching out from our usual DIR floor time, but I think you'll find as I go through the podcast that what Eric does complements what we do with the DIR model so much, and a lot of what he's doing is DIR. And I do want to say um, that I have taken Eric one of Eric's courses, and this has been a real focus of mine to get my son to the point where he is independent. So those who listen to this podcast know that my son is now 13 and a half. And essentially for about eight years, I had a toddler. Developmentally, he was like a toddler. And so what does mama do? Mama babies him. Mama does everything for him. He's the cutest little thing in the world. I love him to death. I call him my little angel bum, my little baby bum. And if he cries, I'm there to fix it. And Eric's uh, YouTube videos and blogs um, have really made me realize that I need to change that because over the pandemic, he turned into more of a little schoolboy who is much more independent than I ever imagined. He gets up on his own. He can turn on the TV, turn on his video games, get the settings correct on the switch that mama doesn't even know how to do and plays and goes through all the menus and does everything and... You know, he's able to do so much more. I'm still preparing all of his food for him. He was perfectly capable of making his own sandwich, I'm sure, but I don't do it. Um, He, I'm still helping him get dressed even though he can do a lot of it himself. I should be empowering his ability, right, Eric? That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Especially when uh, parents are so concerned, what's gonna happen when? And I think that's a good place to start, Eric. Would you tell us the story about how this all started for you?
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, so I have a older sister, um, having a family member with a, with a developmental disability has just been my life, right? Like, um, because I'm the younger sibling. So, you know, it's just been kind of normal where that's how things have, have, um, have been for me. But I, you know, I think, I didn't maybe have the awareness around developmental disability and what that meant for my sister and maybe meant for my family uh, until my late twenties. I mean, I, I always knew that, you know, my family wasn't like other families. Like I could see that, you know, I could see that from a fairly young age. Like I, I can remember one of my earlier memories, like, you know, being probably nine or 10 or maybe 11, something like that. And, um, my mom would take us like grocery shopping and she would take us, um, you know, clothes shopping, things like that. I remember being in the mall and pushing my sister and, um, for some reason, whatever it was, I, I don't know. Yeah, I, I assume
0: you mean pushing in a wheelchair.
1: Yeah. So I was going to okay. get to that. So for whatever reason, my sister didn't have a wheelchair at that point. So she had like a big stroller. So. Not a normal thing to see a you know let's say a eleven or twelve year old in a stroller, so all the other kids would stare right, and I would stare back, give them dirty looks, stick my tongue out at them <laughs> right so um you know that you know defensive defensive brother but you know I think so I had I guess an understanding but um that my family was a little different my sister you know uh was maybe different but I didn't really, I wasn't really that actively involved in my sister's life. I mean, even in my family's life until my late twenties. So, um, you know, I, I went to university and graduated, got a job, like had my own place, et cetera, et cetera. And my mom calls me and she's in the middle of a work day, it like a Wednesday at two in the afternoon. She's she, the first thing she says like, Hey mom, what's up? The first thing she says is Eric, I can't do it anymore. And, I instinctively knew what she mean, but uh, I was like, mom, what do you, what do you mean? She's like, Sarah has to move out. Like I'm done. Like my mom is just physically and emotionally burnt out. She had been that caregiver for 30 years, 30 plus years. And, um, she didn't, she, she had been trying to find paths forward and doing her absolute best for my sister, but Kind of like you're describing, like doing absolutely everything for her, even though my sister had levels of capability that we didn't even know were possible at that point in time. So, you know, my mom was doing everything from getting my sister up in the morning to making all of her meals to scheduling her day to uh, all of her transportation to, you know, social connections to, everything right kind of and my sister has a physical disability as well so there's kind of that added um piece where my parents were doing a lot of lifts and transfers and things like that and it kind of been like you know my sister grew up into a you know at that point in time a 30 young 30 year old woman but my parents hadn't my parents thinking hadn't evolved to the point that she was a 30 year old woman they still treat her like a little kid which she was no longer right So, um, yeah, anyways, my mom burnt out and, um, and I had a decision to make. It was, you know, my mom had called me basically asking for help do I want to get involved and and see what I can do to support, or do I want to keep my head stuck in the sand and, um, (laughs) let my family figure it out on their own. Yeah. And then we just started looking for options and we turned to kind of like the service model, um, and as many families find it's not very helpful uh there aren't um there aren't really any good services typically and um the availability is quite slim and that's kind of the case no matter in most places where people live um especially across north america but um so yeah we had to start looking at well what are alternative options and um i'm really glad that you know we did that and i I was privileged enough to have some time and resources to to go down that path and explore it because it started leading us down the path of, well, what would, what would a more ordinary life look like for Sarah instead of the typical, typical special needs life, right? So the special needs life for people being, you know, they're either staying at home or they're going to a group uh, day program, or they're going to live in a, a group home, right? Like those are the societal norms in Western society that are available, that people think are available for people with developmental disabilities. But I started learning about this whole other path of, well, what would it look like for my sister to live an ordinary life, right? What would it look like for her to build freely given relationships? What would it look like for her to become more capable? What would it look like for her to live in a home Of her own maybe with a supportive roommate right not a group home what would it look like to explore paid employment right so looking at the ordinary side of things and yes there's a ton of things to figure out and you know we don't still don't have all the answers but you know my sister went from living with mom and dad and then my sister actually a couple years so we started doing a bunch of visioning and a whole bunch of learning implementing stuff two years later my sister moved in with me my sister lived with me for two years and that's where i with my sister and my mom learned a lot of this capability stuff and how to help my sister grow. And at that time I also became a certified coach. Um, and then, uh, yeah, so my sister lived with me for two years and then she moved into her own apartment. Um, and the plan was for her to have her own, um, or to have a supportive roommate. So just like a neurotypical person that would be a roommate doing ordinary roommate stuff. But the advantages of that are like, well, there's someone else there to maybe help make decisions for a relationship for maybe making shared meals together, spending some time together, those sorts of things. Um, so, you know, great things for kind of non-paid support, but my sister's like, Nope, I'm, I want to try living on my own. We're like, okay. So, <laughs> so yeah, we figured it out and, um, yeah, she's doing great. So she's been in her own place for, uh, Yeah. Around three years now. Um, Yeah. Right. About three years. And um, yeah. So, you know, you know, if you go back to like five years ago, mom was doing absolutely everything for right now, if you fast forward to today, my sister's living on her own, which we never thought would have been possible five years ago. Um, She gets herself up in the morning. Five years ago, my mom got her up every single morning. Um, She gets herself ready for the day. She gets herself breakfast, whereas five years ago, she never made a meal for herself, right? Um, She often prepares her lunch. Um, I mean, she has kind of some support in the evening, um, paid support um, that helps her with self-care and cooking and things like that. So she'll kind of prep her lunch for the day before. Um, Before the pandemic, she was volunteering at the YMCA. That kind of went away with the pandemic, but now she's starting to explore paid employment, which is really exciting. Um, She's got a bunch a great group of um freely given relationships and her support circle so um yeah her life has transformed quite dramatically um which is pretty awesome so that's the longish version (laughs) of uh yeah kind of the journey of my family
0: it it really is incredible because like you said your mom did everything and I think a lot of parents find themselves in that boat because we're a little bit scared to let our kids fail and hurt themselves or, um, you know, get injured, be laughed at, um, yeah. whatever it is. We also are just creatures of habit. So we just keep doing what works and we forget that this child that we have is growing and developing and has so much more capability than we give them credit for. And, and that's certainly where I am. So <laughs> that's why your course um, really spoke to me. I wanted to take a second to share your website. For those listening on audio, if you go to affectautism.com and look at the Empowering Ability podcast, uh, you'll see the links to Eric's website, empoweringability.org. And so um, it says special needs, life no more. Your loved one can have an awesome, ordinary life. And I'm just scrolling down and showing that you can get a free guide. If you click, Eric has this wonderful PDF, which I am showing and scrolling through. And I just want people to see, and you can get your own copy by downloading it here. There's Eric and his sister, and he has it broken down into a number of things. First being seeing your loved one as capable. And I think that's the first step that you described, Eric, that a lot of people just really don't even realize that they don't do.
1: Yeah, for sure. It's it's like a it's a mindset thing. Yeah. Uh, it, the the challenge is that again, kind of the societal dialogue is in thinking is that people with developmental disabilities are incapable. They and and because of that, low expectations are put on them. And then we adopt that thinking as families, right? Like the medical system you know, might've told us that at the time, our loved one might've been diagnosed, right? Like so many, I've heard so many stories of families saying like the doctor said, your, your loved one will never do X, Y, Z. Right. And then that's implanted in your brain and you believe it, but it's likely not true. Um, and then the school system, same thing, right? The school system says, you know, your loved one can't do this or, you know, they won't do that. Um, So as our loved one grows up, like that, that those low expectations are reinforced. So, um, we have to believe our loved ones capable and see the potential in them because it's likely that other people are not going to. So it has to really, we have to be the driver and the champion of that. Of course, there's going to be people who will also be champions along the way, but, um, but that's not the, 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 um, majority thinking in our society.
0: It's so true. And, and I love that you put the onus on us. Like we, we really have to drive that because people get cues from the way they see us treating our children. Um, so I love that. Um, I'm just going to share the screen again to show, um, your YouTube channel. I'll, I'll go back to the website here for a minute. So that's where you can download the the document I was talking about. And um, up at the top of the menu, you can see Eric has a blog and he posts different videos, independence tips every week. And you can go to his YouTube channel and the links again will all be at the blog post for today where he gives you little tips. And then um, before we get into the services that you offer, Eric, I just wanted to here, just go through some of these other things and show how how much similarity you have with DIR Floor Time. But yeah. I love this tip: stop doing and telling. And uh, you know, we say in in Floor Time too, in support decision making, we're really getting away from a compliance behavioral model, and we're inspiring um, our loved ones to relate and communicate with us and to think. And really, that's what you're doing here too. Uh, working with your loved one to grow. And so let them lead. We always say that floor time is child-led, but it's also adolescent and adult-led. We join where they are. We follow their interests. And so I love that you have here, let your loved one lead, go at their pace. We say meet them at their developmental uh, capacities, where they are developmentally in that moment, but also in general, um, meet them where they're at, as opposed to, you know, expecting them to do something that's way too hard for them or babying them, as you say, um, just going at their pace. I love that taking small steps. It's so important to really have them experience success. And by taking small steps, they can experience success routine and repetition. We talk about all the time. And I, I love this one, too. Can you say a few words about letting them fail?
1: Yeah, for sure. So often we, you know, are protecting our loved one, right? You talked about mama bear, (laughs) right? Mm -hmm. I know there's a lot of mama bears out there. So, um, the, the problem with that is that one of the main ways we learn is by trying things and seeing some sort of result. And it's not always going to turn out the way that we want it to. Right. So, if, you know, even if we get to the point of letting our loved one try something and we see, oh, it's not going the way it's supposed to, and we step in and intervene and we disrupt kind of the natural flow of things of the consequence that might evolve from whatever that action is, then it, it kind of breaks that loop of learning or that learning cycle. And our loved one learns that, you know, someone's always going to step in and save them as well. So when I talk about, like, letting our loved one fail, we, um, you know, the kind of where, where I went deeper in the research with, with this one is, um, have you heard of a guy named Robert Penske or I think it's Pensky?
0: I don't think so, but I can put have a link the, to it. Yeah. In... Have
1: you heard of the dignity of risk? No. Okay. So yeah, you might want to dig a little bit deeper into that one. Actually, if you pull up the PDF guide, let's take a look. So like, I have a quote there. Okay. Um, that we can read off from Robert, the dignity of risk. Robert Persky. Persky. Yeah. Um, okay. So, uh, Robert says, and this was published in 1972. So in the past, we found clever ways to build avoidance of risk into the lives of persons living with disabilities. Now we must work equally hard to find, or sorry, equally hard. Yeah. Hard to help, Find the proper amount of risk, these people have the right to take. Um, we've learned that there can be a healthy development in risk taking, and there can be crippling indignity in safety. Right. So that last part, there can be crippling indignity in safety. So like taking the right amount of risk is a key way in that we grow. So you know I I guess a, maybe a simplified way to think about it is like you want to be able to keep playing the game, right So if you fall down, you want to be able to get back up, right? So you don't want the risk to be so big that if your loved one falls down, they're not going to be able to get back up off the mat, right? So when you think about the right amount of risk, it might be, okay, what what happen if my loved one you know, failed at this thing or they fell down? If they only scraped their knee, That's probably around the right amount of risk to be taking, right? If it's, if you're going to be breaking bones, if you're not gonna be able to get up off the mat, you know, I'm using, trying to use this metaphorically here, but, um, right. So when we scrape our knee, we get that feedback of, um, you know, that learning feedback of what didn't work. And then maybe there can be a conversation of what we can try differently. Um, or did I like that decision that I made? Maybe that was a bad decision for me. Um, or maybe it was a good decision. Um, yeah. What comes up for you, Daria, as I talk?
0: Well, I remember my son um, before his brain inflammation in the first two years of life, where reflecting back, I still, I think he was autistic from birth, but the brain inflammation exacerbated some of his uh, disabilities that he might not have had. You know, he always had lots of sensory needs. Um, But I remember being amazed at, you know, him trying to do something And like he would fall and trip or something, or he would knock something over by accident, things that would make me go "Ah," and get angry. I was just amazed that this this little child just didn't think twice about it and just got up and tried to do it again without having that. And then it made me realize like all of those things are socially learned, right, that we get upset about something. And I just thought, oh, isn't this interesting? This little kid's just trying to do something and whether it was starting to crawl or starting to walk and falling and then they get back up and they do it again and they're not getting angry about it. They're just learning, right? Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, what I think of when you're talking about this is how, you know, when we jump in and Dr. Gil Tippy, who is a floor time consultant, a a floor timer that worked with Dr. Greenspan, who um, originally came up with DIR floor time, he, talked about, he talks about this all the time where, you know, a lot of times we jump in too quickly. Let's think about, um, you know, in the context of conversation with autistic kids or wondering about something or, you know, we're in a place where we're having a back and forth interactions and we're, we're working on social problem solving or shared problem solving to figure out, hmm, yeah, I would love to get that toy off the shelf. Hmm. And, you know, a lot of times we are so uncomfortable with waiting that we jump in and we give the answer. And so the child learns exactly what you said, the child learns, oh, if I just wait long enough, they're going to do it for me. And so being uncomfortable with being comfortable with the uncomfortable silence and the uncomfortable, like, "Mm, I wonder, and he always, you know, does that, "Mm," you know, that kind of like, leaving that space open for the child to respond and let's see what they're thinking and you know having your foot on the gas and brake at the same time because if they're just getting to the point where they're frustrated and they're about to turn their attention away then you can say what about hmm there's a chair over there and then waiting and seeing if they go and get the chair and you know just giving them the opportunity to to solve a problem together Um, so that's what I thought of when you were talking about that like, yeah,
1: for sure. Or like the other really important thing there um is teaching our loved one to ask for help. Mm-hmm. Right. Instead of just jumping in and doing it for them. Like learning to ask for help is such an important skill for everyone. I I could do that better too. But um, you know, if you know, you know, in many situations, right, it's mom, right? Or sometimes it's dad, it could be a sibling, but you deeply understand your loved one, so you see them looking at the toy on the shelf or whatever it is on the shelf that they want to get. You know what they want, and if you just do it right, you're removing that learning opportunity. Um, but the problem is, is like that when you do that, you're kind of reinforcing that behavior, right? I don't like using the word behavior, but you re- you you build that pattern, right? So, um, and it, it becomes a pattern of learned helplessness. So now your loved one has learned, they look at you, you try and figure out what they want, and then you do it or you speak for them, right? Like I can't think of how many, how often, like my sister will look at me or look at my mom when somebody's asking her a question, right? Because it's just been reinforced that my mom will answer or I will answer or my dad will answer. So it's giving the opportunity to, um, again, to communicate. And then I think learning that skill of asking if they can't figure it out or, you know, or they need help to be able to ask for help, because what if one day you're not there Mm -hmm. and there is going to be that day? Like we never, we don't like to think about it, but that's more than likely reality.
0: Yeah, it's, it happens all the time. I'll, I'll notice that I speak for my son or he wants something and I, I just get it for him automatically, or, um, someone will talk about something and, you know, they'll say, oh, how are you? Or, or whatever they'll say, what did you do today? Or whatever they ask, he'll say something. Um, let me try and think of an example. Um, oh, did you have fun this weekend? Toad has a new car. He goes really fast, blah, 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 blah. And he goes on and on. And like, Seemingly has nothing to do with what the person just asked. But I'm like, I say, Oh, he's telling you about the new Mario game he played this weekend, which was so much fun. Mm -hmm. So I'm basically bridging what people don't understand. Like, what is he talking about? Oh, he's telling you what he did this weekend. He's answering your question, but he's you don't understand the way he's answering. And so I also might say to my son, like, wait a second, they don't know what you're talking about. What are you talking about? And he'll say, oh, the new mario game blah 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 and i'll say the new what wait a sec what do you mean or he'll say you know he'll describe something but he won't he won't describe it in a way that they can understand it and you right. know maybe that's part of the theory of mind which he's developing in in what we call the the fourth capacity in floor time where you start to take the perspective of another and can see like wait that person doesn't know what i'm saying um but i jump in all the time and um similarly i notice that when he struggles with something so usually it's around luigi's battery died Ah! and i'll say oh no and then he'll i'll go okay get the screwdriver whatever so he'll like put the screwdriver he'll say i can't do it and he puts it down and i'll say yes you can and he always defaults to i can't do it help and so i'll start to say Yes, you can. And like, by the time I walk over to help him, he's already done it himself, but his default is always to say, I can't do it. Help like Mm -hmm. scream for help right away. So I really do want to foster in him. Like you can figure it out. And I say that to him, but saying stuff cognitively to our kids is different than them experiencing Mm -hmm. doing it themselves and feeling that success and understanding that they can do it and sort of saying, Oh, good job. You did it yourself. Like that's sort of, to me, a very shallow way of him learning it too, because then is he just doing it so that mama will be pleased and say, good job, as opposed to that intrinsic um, sense of accomplishment.
1: Yeah. Yeah. One of the questions that I always ask in that, that sort of situation, and I coach families to ask is, how do you feel about what you did, right? So instead of it coming from that, it being, um, you know, the external uh motivation coming from me saying that i'm so proud it's trying to get our loved one to share how they are feeling about what they accomplished to kind of further bring out that intrinsic motivation
0: yes yes and i wonder if my son's there yet because i think he would probably say some scripted things that they work on at school so he might say oh good Or he might just say, yeah, I feel proud or something that someone has said, do you feel proud? And he says, yes. And so now he repeats, I feel proud, but I don't know if he's actually connecting it and feeling it yet, which brings me to a question I wanted to ask you. um, And we're going to get into a minute, the services that you offer, but do you feel like there's a certain age that you start to intervene? So the clients you have, Um, I'm sure maybe some some of your clients have children who are autistic and have intellectual disabilities uh, or developmental disabilities as well but a lot of the clientele you have are maybe and I could be wrong more complex uh, disabilities or not necessarily.
1: Uh, So in terms of like the significance of a person's developmental disability it varies right like so there's yeah. I mean, I, I, I serve families with a, that have, you know, various diagnosis and we don't really focus on diagnosis because again, it's a, um, you know, it's, it's an approach focused on helping our loved one continue to develop, right. Mm-hmm. Develop their, uh, independence, develop their capacity uh, their capability, and then also looking at, well, what are the, um, like looking at more the, the social side of disability. So how can we support our loved one to build more freely given relationships? How can we look at what are the ordinary good things in life and how do we help our loved one, uh, experience those things, get more of those things, build more valued roles, all of those sorts of things. Um, so, sorry, I lost the question. Can you repeat it? So, guys-
0: I mean, I don't know that you would necessarily do that with someone who has a five-year-old.
1: Yes. Right. So age. Um, So the, most of the the families that I serve, their loved one uh, is an adult or they're focused on kind of transitioning into adult years. So I'd say the youngest family that I've served, I think their loved one was nine, but that's, that hasn't been that common. Um, More so like what I typically see is like 16, 17, um, all the way up till people are you know 45, um, the age of the loved one. Now, uh, I, I think families are much better off starting earlier, right? Like if you're if you're doing this learning about how to support your loved one to um, build more independence or capability at in your example, 13, right or you know around that age, you're going to make a lot, your loved one's going to be a a lot better place when they're 18 or they're 20 versus starting at 18 or 20. And then there's a lot of things that, you know, that, um, that I work with families that are really important to learn in terms of developing and maintaining those freely given relationships, right? Like the earlier you can start that, the more kind of relationship capital you can build up over time. That's going to be helpful for your loved one as they shift out of high school.
0: Yes. Yes. As an example. Yeah, it it really is important because, you know, I always feel like, oh, I'm starting this too late. I'm starting this too late. And I kind of feel um, grateful that I found your site when I did, because I think like, okay, yes, I could have started this earlier, but I'm still in a good spot to start it now. And I never want parents to feel like they should have done something different because we all do the best we can yeah. with what we have, when we have it. And whenever we start, it's better than not starting at all. Um, and also we we have different energy levels and different capacities as parents, right? Like some people get burned out more easily and some people are more naturally facilitating independence than others. And so everybody's at such a different level, but, um, yeah, I think everything you said just really resonates so much with me and I would love to share screen again and go back to your website.
1: Yeah, sure. I think like, If families go to the website, um, so empoweringability.org, like I'd say the main thing to do would probably be just download that guide on the homepage, the 12 Mm -hmm. steps to independence and, and get that it's a really quick read. It's like 15, 20 minutes. And then once you do that, um, then I can send you kind of further, uh, free resources. So kind of like my, I have two courses. This one that you have up here is, um, really the one that I focus on the most called the life plan coaching program. Um, so it's a 10 week, sometimes it stretches into 12 week, um, online course to help, uh, create an awesome, ordinary life with your loved one. Again, not that, you know, special needs life and building a life plan around really six key areas, six key life domains that are really important to all of us, but they're especially important to our loved one. So they're listed out here. Um, so capability being kind of that independence piece, and then relationships developing and and maintaining natural relationships, um, contribution so uh, building um, valued roles such as employment or contributing in ordinary community places. And I see that I have a mistake here. I need to change. I have relationships twice. So number okay. four should be should be capability. I'm okay. sorry, con- contribution. Um, okay. Number five, uh, creating home. So what would a what would a, the best home look like for your loved one, which isn't a group home. And when I talk about what a group home is, it's when we're grouping people with developmental disabilities to live together. So it doesn't have to be run by an agency to be a group home. If we're saying, okay, well, there's these other two or three people, families that we know that have a lot developmental disability, let's create a home and have them all live there but still a group home, because when you think about uh, what I encourage families to think about is what is the living environment in that home? What would it feel like to actually live there? Like imagine yourself living in that home. What would it feel like? Okay. So there's, I'm living with three people or two people that I didn't choose to live with, right? How would you feel in that situation? There is paid support coming and going all the time from your house so you have effectively you know i guess some of these people you're going to get to know over time but with paid support there's so much turnover so if you multiply the paid support that one person has now you multiply that by 2 or 3 or 4 you have that much more paid support in the home and inevitably you're going to you're going to have strangers in and out of your house all the time right so it's really when you think about the environment it's institutional living even though families might think, okay, we're going to create this. So really need to think about the home environment. And I I encourage families to think about ordinary, like what would it look like? I know I'm going in really deep here, but I got caught up. So what would it look like for your loved one to like live in an apartment just as a thought experiment and to go through that? Um, And many, it might not even feel realistic. Like some families like Eric, that's never going to happen. I invite you to think through it. Because if you don't, if you don't at least think through it, then yes, you're right, it is never going to happen. Um, so anyways, thinking about what would the best home be for your loved one, and I encourage you that, that there is better than a group home. Um, support and finance, so thinking about what's the right level of support for your loved one, um, which includes like a combination of paid support, technology, natural support, family support. Um, finance, like what is, you know, what are all the things that you need to have in place? Like, you know, uh, will trust, um, how does your loved one going to manage money? Um, and then awesomeness. So like thinking about all the other things that we want in our life, whether that's fun, adventure, romance, um, could be spirituality, culture, et cetera. So thinking about all those things. So building the, so basically I walk families through, um, um, there's like four different steps. So the first step is thinking about our emotional readiness as family members, right? You kind of describe that mama bear, right? So mm-hmm. if mama bear is not ready, then your loved one's never going to be ready. Like mama bear is the gatekeeper, right? So we need to work through some stuff and, and, um, process some of how we're feeling about things and some of our emotions to be able to then open our mind to this sort of thinking and and to be able to take steps forward. Then there's, um, learning about the ordinary possibilities. So what are the ordinary things that other people with disabilities are doing? Right. Like, you know, what are the, what are the places they're living in? What are the jobs they have? What are the other valued roles they have in community? What are the, what does the relationships look like that they have? Um, You know, how have they grown their capability or their independence? And it's helpful when we can see other examples of those, even if the, that person's disability is different than our loved ones, because now we, we start to get a picture of like, oh, okay, maybe, maybe there's a part of that that might be possible for my love. So expanding our thinking, um, learning best practices.
0: Can I jump in for a second with an example? So I was in Quebec city in August and i was with a friend of mine having dinner and beside us in the table right beside us was a couple they were probably in their late 20s maybe 30 ish and it was very clear that they both had intellectual disabilities of some kind and they were just out having a great dinner together and so that's the kind of thing that you mean like yeah they're on a date and and then i can't remember why I can't remember what happened that sparked us to interact with them, but they, the girl said something like, Oh, you guys are so cute. And then uh, said, we've been dating for five years and sort of gave a little bit of information about them. And they both had their phones and they were both looking at their phones, but then they were also talking to each other. And, you know, she was speaking a little bit louder than usual. And my son is always speaking very loud. So it didn't bother me at all, but, Um, I just loved seeing that they were out on a date, just having a nice social life. And when I think about what, you know, of course my son is only 13 and a half and developmentally, you know, uh, younger in the sense that, you know, he's acting and learning more along the lines of a younger child would. um, I don't, I don't see him at the point yet where he goes out and does things on his own, but I realize he hasn't experienced so many things that I experienced as a kid. He's never gone outside to play on his own without supervision. He's Mm -hmm. never gone anywhere without supervision. He's never like the only thing he's done unsupervised is maybe play in the house. And like, that's huge. Like he hasn't had the chance to go, um, you know, Build sand castles on the beach, build forts in the snow, except with oops, with someone else there, facilitating it, mm-hmm. and starting to give that independence. And you know, having play dates, the play dates are always supervised too. You know, Um, so I guess that's sort of along the lines of the things you were describing.
1: Yeah, one step at a time. <laughs> right, right? <laughs> right, like. Again, it's just like that slow momentum forward and progression. Um, And if we, like, one of the things I always talk about with families, like, as long as we're taking small steps forward, we're making progress. And if you take a small step every single week, right, that's 52 small steps in a year. And if you look back to where you are at the end of that year after you've taken 52 small steps forward, you're going to be like, wow, right? Like, you'll, your loving will be noticeably different, you will be noticeably different and you will made a ton of progress. So I think like, don't skip over the importance of taking those small steps, celebrate those small steps along the way. Like so often we take a small step and we're like, ah, whatever. Okay. What's the next step, right? What's the next, what's the next. And of course the next step's important, but also to celebrate the small, small wins along the way. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. And for those listening on audio, when Eric was going through the steps, you might have, oh, I counted this many. And you said there were this many. It's all on his website, empoweringability.org. We were looking under the courses tab. Um, So I don't, I know that that's not the course that I took. So what is the other course?
1: Yeah. So the other course is called the independence coaching program. Mm -hmm. So I use the words independence and capability interchangeably. Like I think as parents, we talk about I'm not a parent. So as parents, parents and families talk about, um, I'm a sibling. So, uh, talk about independence. Um, I think I, I try and be careful with the word independence because so often in Western society, we think of independence as, you know, I'm an independent person. I do everything on my own. Right. And that's kind of held up on a pedestal. And when families hear that, it's like, well, my loved one, that's not going to be my loved one. Right. Right. And that's not what I'm talking about when I say independence, it's helping our loved one grow their capability. And a kind of working definition for that is helping our loved one do more uh, everyday things, right? Helping them learn to do more everyday things and having the motivation to do more everyday things. Um, And that can be with some support, right? Like we all need support, but um, anyway, so Independence coaching program, um, is, uh, that course is around six, seven weeks. So it's a little bit, um, quicker to, to go through, but basically it's a step-by-step process to help families, um, give like in a systematic way, help their loved one continue to grow their, their capability or independence. And a big part of it again, is that inner work that we need to do as family members and start to shift the decision-making or sh- another way to, to put that would be to shift the power dynamic in our lo- in our relationship with our loved one to us holding all the power to slowly giving that power to our loved one or distributing that power more equally um letting our loved one feel more agency bringing them in let them letting them make decisions because as our loved one develops more agency they're going to become more capable they'll start making more decisions um and they'll be more intrinsically motivated to be doing those everyday things on their own. So it's a basically a, a step-by-step kind of guide or process that walks walks families through how to do that. So um, the courses uh, have online, so they're online. They're they have video lessons and then a workbook that um, that accompanies them. And then it comes along with the independence coaching program. Comes along with um, three uh, group coaching calls as well. So we jump on a live Zoom call kind of once a month and, um, yeah, and work through whatever families are, are facing.
0: So Eric really gives you the tools, but you have to take that step yourself and do the work and go through the workbook and then come to the coaching calls with questions and actually implement everything, um, because nobody can do the work for us. And I think it's such a scary step. So I, I wouldn't mind, um, ending off with some questions that I think may make you giggle inside, but I sometimes find that when we're so worried about our loved ones, we lose our common sense. (laughs) And so I will say, okay, so let's say I want to start with something simple, like helping my son participate in planning dinner. And what would you like for dinner? And, or even let's just say your sister, Sarah. So, uh, my son might say every day I'm, I want mac and cheese and hamburger or something like that may, or French let's say, let's say French fries and like fried something that's like really fattening and, and not necessarily nutritious. Like how do you sort of, uh, provide that little bit of agency, but at the same time help teach them like, okay, well, we might want to make some better, healthier choices.
1: <laughs> yeah. So and maybe,
0: maybe food is a bad thing because autistic kids, sometimes there's a lot of eating issues, but for simplicity's sake, let's use that.
1: Yeah. So I think keeping it simple is important. Um, so there's a couple of things there that comes to mind for me. Um, I wouldn't start, well, it depends where your loved one's at, right? Like if, again, we want to, we want to be mindful of where our loved one is and meet them where they are. So if our loved one already has some skills in the kitchen, maybe we're talking about dinner. If our loved one doesn't have skills in the kitchen, then we're, I would advise not to talk about dinner. Cause that's probably the most complex meal that we're going to eat in a day. Right. So breakfast and lunch are typically in Western society. Anyways, typically fairly simple, right. Or they can be much more simple. The options can be a lot simpler. So I think just strategically, that's where I'd put my, put my mind. Um, but. I don't know if I would even start there. So what I think about with, uh, or what I coach families on is to think about what, what would a win-win uh, situation be for you and your loved one and to think, think that through. So what do I mean by that? What would, well, I, I want, you know, you as a family member to think about what would your loved one be interested in learning? What do you think your loved one would be interested in learning? Right. And why might they be interested in learning that? Well, maybe it's something around food and they're motivated by that. Or maybe it's like, they have to wait for you to do certain things and that really frustrates them. So if they didn't have to wait for you, then maybe that would be a benefit for them if they could start it or do it on their own. And that might be motivation enough. So to think of a couple of those things. So let's say that Daria, you were thinking about it for, or let's say I was thinking about this for, for my sister when we were kind of first starting out, let's say it was, okay, maybe my sister interested in making her own breakfast and maybe she's interested in, I don't know, doing the laundry or something. It could be something simpler than that, but we'll just use those two things and you could, so think of two or three that you think your loved one might be interested in. And it's also a win-win for us if our loved one does those things, because while well, we love seeing them grow and then we don't have to do it. Right. Um, so that's the win-win. So kind of keeping those in your back pocket and then approaching your loved one and, you know, we have to meet our loved one where they're at and kind of fit their communication style, but asking them to enter into a conversation, um, because, you know, you're stressed out, you're really busy and you could use some help. Right. So, um, expressing that to your loved one and asking if they, they can talk to you about it and if we can maybe find some solutions together. Um, usually, you know, they would be agreeable to that sort of thing. And, um, you could say it would really, really be helpful for me if you maybe just did one more thing or you did one thing, uh, picked up one thing around the house, that would take so much stress off my plate. Um, would you be open with that? right? and allowing your loved one to say yes or no and instead of just saying, you're gonna do this, right? That often doesn't work very well. And then and then asking, is there is there one or two things? is there is there or not even two things? Is there one thing? that you might want to try and learn and, and do more of and see what your loved one comes up with. Because if they pick that thing, they're going to be more motivated than, than us just picking, okay, you're going to learn to make your breakfast. Right. Um, often our loved one will be like, well, I don't know. Cause they haven't had maybe the opportunity to develop that decision-making. So that's when you go pull out those win-wins out of your back pocket. And you could say something like, Would you be open to me sharing a couple of ideas? And then you could pick the one that you're maybe most interested in if there is one. Yeah. Okay, great. And then you could say, well, um, you know, I know you get frustrated waiting for me to make your breakfast. Would you be, you could, you could, I could help you to learn, or you could learn to, to make your own breakfast, or I know you hate waiting around for me to, you know, do your laundry. You could learn to, to do your laundry. Do you want to try either is, do you want to try either of those and allowing your loved one to pick against transferring that decision-making, transferring that agency to your loved one. And when they make the decision, it's going to be easier, it's going to be easier going from that point forward versus us making the decision. Okay. You're going to learn to make your breakfast. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, and I'm just thinking, you know, something maybe to start off with is facilitating my son to make his own sandwich at lunch because that would be easier than cooking dinner or something like that so get out the bread um you know get out the cold cuts or whatever get up the sauce um and like you said, you know asking him first and seeing what he might be interested in but um what about a more extreme example so you know again I'm thinking of the typical overworried mother okay maybe we're jumping ahead to someone more your sister's age. They're in their own apartment. Uh-oh, they're going to have a bathroom accident one day and they may not understand everything about hygiene and they're they're not going to clean themselves up properly. And then they're going to put their hands in their mouth and then everything's going to be a mess and then they're going to get sick. And oh my God, everything's going to be awful because we tend to catastrophize. <laughs> mm-hmm. So um, how do you help parents you know, get over that extreme fear, or like in your case, it doesn't have to be uh, a woman, but like, oh, a woman's more vulnerable. What if some, what if there's a stalker there and he's going to take advantage of her, you know, like, how do you get over those kind of extreme fears that a lot of us parents might have?
1: Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's, that's, we all have them, right. Whatever they are, um, you know, uh, So I think one of the things that families often say is like, I'm worried for my loved one's safety. Well, we need to get really specific. And you got specific, which is good, right? I'm worried about the stranger that's gonna come to the door and my loved one not knowing what to do or letting somebody in that they shouldn't let in, right? That's pretty specific. Or an issue with, you know, toileting and personal hygiene. Like that's really specific. So we the first step is to not just take safety in broad strokes, it's to get very detailed and what is the actual worry and understand that. And then, and then once you have that worry, let's say it's, you know, the stranger at the door and letting somebody in that you shouldn't let in, how can you safeguard the vulnerability that your loved one has? So there's two different ways to think about it. Um, and you should think about both, uh, what are developmental safeguards and what are protectionary safeguards? So developmental being what can our loved one learn to protect themselves in that situation, right? So it might be some training around door safety, right? That would mean, you know, don't let that person in. Like you don't let anybody in that that you, um, that you don't know. You have to visually see them before you open the door. You should be able to recognize their voice, whatever it is, right? Have that, you know, that that could be an example of a developmental safeguard right something our loved one can learn and then the protectionary side of things it's thinking about what other people could be put in place to help keep our loved one safe what um technology um or maybe what other processes that can be used externally to keep our loved one safe so um you know this is in, this example is one that we thought through for my sister right so there was the training piece right um and there was multiple levels of door entry like there's the front door in her building and then her, there's her apartment door right so she's verifying at each stage right at the at the like she's talking to people over the intercom and understanding who it is before she's opening the front building door and then she visually sees who they are when they get to her her door right so there's kind of those two levels that that she does but and then we've all, we're also using some technology so my sister isn't tall enough to see it at the peephole. So we installed a video um, peephole that has like a six inch LC- L- LED? LCD, I don't know, whatever screen on the back of it. So when somebody walks by the door, the screen lights up and it's, you know, it's a camera. So you can see who's there. So she can visually identify. Um, that device also takes a picture of who's at the door. Uh, so Um, So that's a a piece of technology um, that we use. And there's a couple of other things, but, and then, you know, thinking about other people, right? So a safeguard is getting to know the neighbors, right? And having the neighbors kind of keep an eye out for, is there people coming around that are strangers that maybe shouldn't be coming around and, you know? here's our number. Right. Um, is there like
0: loud, uh, death metal blaring at two in the morning or any odd things like that happening?
1: Yeah. (laughs) Not, not
0: that blaring death metal at two in the morning is bad if that's what they like, but
1: (laughs) yeah. Is that resonating though? Like thinking about it, like getting really specific, thinking about developmental. and Yeah. I'm also thinking
0: even like, um, maybe, you know, if some people want to be even more alert, like, Anytime the door opens, it triggers a text message to the family or something like that. So they're aware someone has just entered my child's apartment or like, I think those are the types of protectionary things that you're,
1: yeah, there's several different types of safeguards that you could have. Um, and I think depending on the situation, you might want to find a balance between someone's privacy and, and their safety. Right. And that might look different. That balance might look different for everybody. Yes. Um, I mean,
0: I know even parents of neurotypical kids who are going off to college, they have apps where they can see where their child is at all times. Uh, And some kids really don't want their parents to know where they are and other kids are more open to it. And the parents will say, if you want me to pay for your gas or if you want me to pay for this, I'm going to be knowing where you are, whatever. So, I mean, it's no different. It's just, you know, on a different uh, different level. Yeah, Yeah,
1: Yeah. and that's super like, super easy right like you can use like the find my friend technology or whatever or find my phone whatever um to be able to locate that person's device and most of us have our phones on us right um so the the solutions can sometimes be pretty simple um but i always encourage families to like talk about that with their loved one versus just do it and track them um i mean if we think about it like if we were in that situation, we would, we want someone just tracking us. Probably not. So.
0: Right. Right. And one of the things you have in that um, PDF handout is about respecting your loved one and respecting them as an adult. Yeah. So um, thank you so much for sharing all this information for listeners or viewers. Again, it's empoweringability.org. He, you can link to his YouTube channel uh, through there. I'll have all the links at affectautism.com on the podcast, Uh, check out his courses, check out, you know, you, even if you don't want to commit right away, he has so many, so many uh, little snippets in his blog and little videos that you can watch that are just tips that you can learn for free and just sort of get used to thinking about this. And maybe it takes a few months or a year to just have it in your head, spinning around in your head, like, like it has been for me before you really jump in and take action. But uh, I think it's never too early to start to think about that when we have children who, you know, are vulnerable in in different situations. And um, I really admire everything that you do, Eric. Thank you so much. It's such a good compliment to what we talk about in DIR floor time. And um, I really hope listeners will check out your website. Thank you so much.
1: Yeah, thank you, Daria. It was fun to uh, have our conversation today. And uh, yeah, hopefully it's helpful to some folks.
0: Until next time, here's to choosing play and experiencing joy every day.